Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, question one for government automation leaders in 2022. What are the barriers that they are encountering in sort of making this kind of shift that that the private sector is making more rapidly? What fixes FISMA for a decade or more? Streamlining of the processes in ways that the executive branch is able to really focus on effective cybersecurity has got to be the goal. Right now, it's too much going back to your original question of how do I check the boxes, how do I get the checklist done. And the real juice behind FATARA for chief information officers. It's not perfect at all these agencies, but they're viewed more as a business partner to the mission leaders. And that's really when you step back and folks ask me, what was FATARA really about? It was to elevate the role of the CIO. It's Friday, January 21st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies have new guidance for Internet Protocol Version 6 from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The guidance describes security considerations for trusted Internet Connection 3.0. The Executive Assistant Director of Cybersecurity at CISA, Eric Goldstein, says the federal government's, quote, expanding and enhancing its strategic commitment to IPv6. One of the federal government's robotic process automation leaders is leaving government, Gerard Bedorick's last day as chief financial officer at the General Services Administration is today after seven years at the agency. Bedorick led GSA's RPA Community of Practice, too. Congressman Jerry Connolly and Daryl Issa are getting the government IT band back together. The co-authors of the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act are establishing a new IT modernization caucus in the House of Representatives. They are also co-founders of a cloud computing caucus in the House in 2014. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. February 8th is the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop's putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End in D.C. from 8.30 to 3. You can read more about it and sign up through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Biden administration's customer experience executive order doesn't say explicitly that agencies should use automation tools to provide better CX, but scaling those tools across government will provide that result, according to Dan Chenick. He's executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Dan, welcome. It's great to see you as always. I apologize if I incorrectly put words in your mouth, but I took that idea from what you wrote recently, IA, intelligent automation, a key component of the work of implementing that executive order, is a suite of scalable technologies and processes that improve efficiency and allow government employees to spend more of their time in direct support to citizens. Am I reading your words right that IA will be important to scaling and meeting the spirit of that executive order, Dan? Welcome. Absolutely. Thanks, Francis. It's always great to to talk with you. so the suite of intelligent automation technologies, which includes artificial intelligence and machine learning, natural language processing, and also things like robotic process automation, um, uh, all kinds of tools that really didn't 10 or 15 years ago provide the, t- the type of power to both do analysis of information for government, but also improve how government interacts with citizens and understands their needs and provide um, real-time interactive service. All of those things are critical to how the private sector has revolutionized its service delivery and how government increasingly is doing so in its citizen-facing services as demonstrated by the executive order. 
So I had an interesting customer experience situation in the private sector that I wonder if it might be an example of what you're talking about here. I bought something online three or four days ago. It went on sale two days ago. And so through a chatbot discussion, I got a refund of the difference. And it occurred to me after the transaction was over, I probably didn't talk to a human. I probably talked to a bot or or interacted with a bot and that transaction happened and I didn't care. All that I cared about was that it was resolved to my satisfaction in a timely manner and that's exactly what happened. That's the difference that you're talking about, isn't it? Where the work that a human has to do for the federal government is really limited to what a human has to do and what some bot can do, we let them go do. Right. Now, were you on a chat, like an online yeah. chat with the, with the bot? That's right. Sure. So think of it in three stages. Um, there's the what I'll call the self-service stage, where you can use automated technologies to provide what are essentially frequently asked questions um, that can address you know, a large majority of the questions of any citizen that's calling in for, let's say, you know, where's my social security check? Or what time does this campsite open? Um, how do I reserve? Then there are the sort of second level questions that are somewhat unique, but probably have been dealt with before. And those go into a, like an artificial intelligence engine that says, all right, I want to go to this campsite, but I also want to combine it with a visit to the national park in the next state. How do I, uh, you know, make sure that the timing is done right. Uh, and oftentimes those chatbots basically learn from experience in dealing with customers before, so that if a similar question comes in again, uh, they can provide a, an answer without uh, human interaction. You can have an experience like the one that you had with the with the commercial website. But then there are the sort of the the questions that are very tailored, unique to an individual. Maybe you um, haven't come up so much before. Uh, and that's where an agent assistant working uh, to provide a service to a citizen, either directly from a federal agency or through a state and local partner or uh, a grantee, um, can really focus on that individual's needs, but also can take advantage of AI-based information or other automated tools to provide a better, faster experience. So they're not fumbling through paper trying to figure out or saying, I have to get back to you and do some research. They've got the the databases at their disposal that they can do the analysis on to answer the question more quickly. All right. You cite three different uh, key technologies in this most recent work uh, that you posted on LinkedIn. You talk about RPA, and I think we have discussed RPA on this program and more broadly in government over time sufficiently that people probably understand fairly well what it does. You cite two other ones that I don't know as much about, intelligent document processing and process discovery and process mining. What do those mean and what are some instances where you're seeing people using them across government? Yeah, so these were technologies actually that ACT-IAC um, reported on as well in its report. Um, and we uh, adapted that for, for the purpose of, of the work that we're embarking on, which um, we're going to be doing uh, this year uh, to talk about the intelligence document processing is more like what we just described. It's more like using AI and NLP to enhance sort of a conversation um, between a service provider and a, and a service recipient uh, to be able to, let's say you, you have to send in a scanned uh, document that you signed to a mortgage company. Um, it, you know, it can, it can do a more efficient electronic processing. But, the third one, the process discovery and process mining, that's more about 
what I'll call back office efficiency, where you're looking at where are there redundancies uh, in processes that are requiring lots of different people to enter data in the same way, or lots of different financial systems to kind of um, require a lot of additional work to work together to produce a, like an accounts payable or accounts receivable picture for an organization or an agency. And that's really where you get a lot of the complement to what we've talked about so far, which is the customer service efficiency, the cost and time savings. Um, so a lot of government um, for, for decades, if not centuries, has been focused on um, you know, sort of complying with uh, different processes, uh, complying with regulations, a lot of time spent on that, less time spent on sort of the higher order value added work. And this, this suite of technologies around process discovery um, really helps government spend less time and less money working and less, less sort of contract dollars working on those sort of redundant issues, uh, um, those competitive issues, and more time in all three of those categories, working on higher order issues, providing better service, um, make sure, enhancing the, the quality of work for federal employees, because they're not spending as much time on those redundant rote type of tasks and they're able to really focus on the mission, that sort of thing. That sounds to me like the most wonderful paraphrase of the Trump administration's president's management agenda of moving from lower value to higher value work. It sounds like that concept is a continuation from that administration to this administration and beyond because it's a, a really noble and worthwhile goal, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's actually something that's carried across multiple administrations uh, of both parties. Okay. Probably since since the since the Clinton administration and the reinventing government yeah. initiative, where they they talked about that, and and a lot of the sort of the internal efficiency effectiveness uh, initiatives of the of the second Bush administration's president's management agenda, and then leading into the customer service initiatives of the last several administrations. And I think you're seeing with the with the launch of the Biden administration's president's management agenda vision. You see the third plank of that is managing the business of government, a title that, that we at the Center for the Business of Government like a lot. Um, uh, that really focuses a lot on sort of using technologies to enable more efficient uh, financial management or efficient acquisition that supports agency missions. I thought you might have had some kind of inside track there that people didn't know about, that, that you might have uh, figured no, out how to juice that process somehow. It's a catchy title. It is. It's a very catchy title. All right. Speaking of the IBM Center, you want to drive a dialogue on on this in uh, 2021 on intelligence or 2022. Jeez, I'm I'm doing the same thing I do with my checks. I'm still writing the previous year uh, into the new year. Um, you want to drive a dialogue on intelligent automation in 2022, Dan? What do you want the focus of that dialogue to be? So we'll be working with um, both civilian and defense leaders in, in, uh, the, in different program offices, different technology offices, um, and different process uh, offices, financial acquisition, to see what are the barriers that they are, are encountering in sort of making this kind of shift that, that the private sector is you know, making more rapidly. And, and that I would note that you know, the last two years experience of you know, complete work from home, uh, much more moving online has accelerated a lot of the need for this and um, uh, accelerated a lot in government, especially at the state and local level, their, um, their delivery of services in this manner. And so talking to the federal leaders about what can be um, uh, addressed in terms of budget, financial rules, um, uh, cultural rules, can agencies come together? Um, so trying to, to sort of understand and advance the dialogue that, as I said, been longstanding 
what are the current barriers? How do we overcome those barriers to achieving these outcomes? And how can we set in motion an actionable, practical roadmap that agencies can adapt in, in their own settings and, and take advantage of to provide better customer service and improve the quality of work for their employees? Dan Chenna, great to talk to you. Look forward to continuing the conversation as you learn more through this dialogue. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to Dan's post in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Reform is coming in some form for the Federal Information Security Management Act. The Senate's version is different from the House's version, but some of the concepts are the same. Gordon Bitko is Senior Vice President of the Information Technology Industry Council, and he testified recently to the House of Representatives about FISMA reform. Gordon, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What was the main message you wanted to convey to the committee? Welcome. Hey, Francis. Thanks again for having me. It's always great to talk to you. I think the main message that I wanted to convey to the committee was an understanding that cybersecurity continues to evolve and FISMA as legislation is is dated. It doesn't allow the government and government contractors to keep up with the challenges that we see every day now from from a cybersecurity threat standpoint. One of the frustrations that your peers as chief information officers at agencies and sub-agencies have told me over the years is that FISMA, even the, in the update eight years ago, continues to be more of a compliance exercise. I can, uh, this, I'm actually quoting a former CIO, I can do the checklist and still not be sure whether my network is secure or not just because of those exercises. What does legislation look like that changes that, that gets it to, uh, to something that is actually a network security exercise rather than a compliance exercise? A hundred percent agree with whichever other former CIO I was who told you that it was it was not me. It was but not I you. Certainly, I sort of I could have certainly been the person behind those words as well. I think it highlights, on the one hand, Francis, that compliance is important, right? You have to do the checklist, you have to have the inventories of systems, and and all those things are necessary. But they aren't measuring results. And that's really what we need to get to, to be effective down the road. We need to have in place the ability to really understand risk in real time, to look at how systems and, and, and agency information environments can respond and deal with that risk. And I think there's a couple of ways we can do that. And a, a good one that's in the draft legislation that I think we need to do a lot more of is, is actual penetration testing. See how how agencies respond to a to a real actor who is behaving like an adversary, trying to gain access to your critical jewels, to your most sensitive information. What the, what do you do when that happens? That pen testing looks like what, Gordon? What how, is that something agencies are doing enough of now? Or is it something they're doing at all now? What what's that look like currently, and what would that look like in a more, uh, more mature, more robust state? There is body pen testing happening now, Francis. Individual agencies or components of agencies do it. They don't do it in the, in the rigorous ways that I think we need to move to. And then there are a lot of agencies that just don't have the capability. It's, it's a bridge too far for them now. They're struggling just with today's compliance requirements. The legislation looks at saying either agencies should do this themselves or CISA should have the authority to come in and work with agencies who don't have the resources. And I think that's a good way to to recognize that not everybody's in the same spot on the maturity spectrum for cybersecurity. At what point does, does it make sense, do you think, for CISA to become 
the organization that does a lot of this stuff, not just maybe for the small agencies that don't have resources, but for all of the agencies so that there's some kind of centralized awareness or some kind of centralized measuring that you can compare this agency to that agency and not to pit them against each other and not to say somebody's succeeding, somebody's failing, but just to have an enterprise view somewhere of what that looks like. I think it is really important, Francis, to have that enterprise view. We're only as good as the weakest link. Everybody's interconnected in one way or another, and a vulnerability in one agency can turn very quickly into something that compromises other agencies. Finding that right balance is is going to be critical, and I know that's a part of what different oversight agents, entities within Congress are looking at right now. Does that belong at OMB? Does it belong in CISA? How much authority should be given to CISA? CISA is, is, to be frank, a, a, a new and, and growing agency, and there's concern, some of it valid, that do they have the capacity today to take all this on? And that's something that would have to be addressed if we're going to answer the, the question that you're posing about should CISA have that responsibility. So when you refer to capacity and some of the other things that you've talked about in this conversation, Gordon, some of the things that you uh, discussed at the hearing and so on, the cynic in me goes to this is all a conversation that at its core revolves around money resources on capitol hill is all money and i wonder if that's what is going to wind up really being the solution here is more money from the congress to the agencies to be able to do all these things that and please understand i'm not suggesting that what you're saying is just a plea for money but that's really what underpins it all right there is at its root, I will say not just money, but but personnel and capacity there too. And then of course, you can look at that as a money question as well, because you need to make the investments in the in the people. And and um, the reality is that we're in a place today where cybersecurity, if it's not the the top risk for every agency, it's got to be in the top two or three. And and we need to invest appropriately. Agencies all I think have good risk management plans for the traditional risks that they're used to dealing with. This is a new and evolving thing, and lots of agencies haven't really come to grips yet with what does that mean, and have they made the right internal balance of priorities in how they're going to make investments. I, I, I fear that the answer is no in many cases, and to address that, it, it will absolutely require that investment. Representative Katko is on, on the record, unfortunately, retiring because he's a representative who I think really understands the challenges here. He's on the record talking at length about the need to grow CISA and where he sees it going down the road to becoming a five and $10 billion agency down the road to do the sort of things, Francis, that you're talking about. Congressman Katko's retiring. Congressman Langevin um, announced he's retiring. Who takes up that mantle once they're gone? That is a great question. I think that there are, uh, I'm, I am um, heartened by the fact that the hearing was the full oversight committee and it was attended by a lot of members. My hope is that some of them understand the need and the challenge and, and step in and recognize that it's critically important. It's challenging for, for all sorts of reasons. It's not the traditional sort of activity that, that, that members of Congress are used to working on. And, and so uh, they've got to they've see the big picture. I'm, I'm confident that there are others who do, who, who ha have been engaged and will stay engaged. Representative Clark, she's been active in a lot of cybersecurity and supply chain issues for a while and continues to be a great voice. And, and uh, you know, there are others like her as well. So um, 
I think it's a process and we need to get to the point uh, across Congress and across government agencies where people recognize the importance of cybersecurity. You anticipated my last question, Gordon, which is uh, what do you take away from the atmosphere of that hearing? Uh, You know, you're right. Normally it's a subcommittee discussion on cybersecurity and it's the subcommittee chair. And if you're lucky, the ranking member shows up and not reflective of party. Historically, it's been this way no matter who's in control. And this was very well attended. It was the full committee level. What does that say to you about at least the stature with which um, the House is treating cybersecurity in the executive branch right now? Absolutely, Francis. I, I took that as a sign that there is a recognition that things need to be done. And there was a bipartisan interest in it. And people obviously are all coming at it from different perspectives and bring different experiences and backgrounds. And I think we need that. And I think we need to use that to get to a consensus this year on what is not just FISMA reform, but let's get incident reporting legislation finalized. We've been talking about that for a while. And and ideally, these things are all part of a package, right? And we get a consistent message across all of them and not thinking about incident reporting in the federal landscape differently than it is on on the commercial side. So I I think that there is a bipartisan consensus that now is the time that it needs to be done. And my hope, honestly, not that uh, Representative Langevin leaving or Representative Kaka leaving is a good thing, but that they that they recognize the sense of urgency and and feel like it's an opportunity to make an important mark as they do leave to get these things done and finalized. All right. I misspoke a moment ago. That wasn't my last question. This is my last (laughs) question. Um, What is a good outcome for the executive branch agencies, in your view, from this FISMA reform dialogue? I think a good outcome, there's a number of good outcomes, but streamlining of the processes in ways that the executive branch is able to really focus on effective cybersecurity has got to be the goal. Right now, it's too much going back to your original question of, how do I check the boxes? How do I get the checklist done? And great, we need to do all that, but how do we move beyond that to real risk management? That's that's effective. And making decisions about how to do that, empowering the right people across government in ways that they can do that. I mean it this time. That was my last question. Gordon Bitko, thanks very much as always, my friend. Thank you, Francis. Great to be with you as always. You can find a link to the FISMA reform hearing in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Monday's show, I mentioned earlier that today is Gerard Bedorick's last day as the CFO at the General Services Administration. He'll be on the Daily Scoop podcast Monday for an exit interview and a preview of what's coming for RPA across government. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. A new Fatara scorecard is coming. Version 14 will look and grade differently than version 13 that came out yesterday. David Pounder is executive director of the Center for Data-Driven Policy at MITRE. He's former director of IT issues at the Government Accountability Office and one of the architects of the original Fatara scorecard. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. And I say that because you noted before we went on the air that out of 13 hearings about the Fatara scorecard, you've testified at eight of them. What was the message you wanted to convey to the committee yesterday? Welcome. Uh, Well, thanks for having me, Francis. The big message yesterday was that the scorecard has been helpful over time. We've seen progress on some key, you know, IT areas, but it's gotten stale, frankly, over the last several years. And it's time to make some additional changes because there are some more pressing 
you know, IT and cyber needs that really need to be focused on. And in particular, you know, like the cyber category that's on here, it's a great category, but some of those metrics are a bit dated and we're uh, really in need of updating those metrics. I even think, you know, we're talking about the FACAR hearing, but the FISMA hearing that was held last week, you know, some of those key points came up is that these metrics really need to be current and provide, uh, you know, a, the, the, a good, good insights into our cyber posture. And it needs to be consistent with things that are going on with the cyber EO, zero trust strategies and things like that that matter. Um, I note a couple of things about the scorecard that we saw yesterday. Uh, seven agencies went up, 13 agencies flat, four agencies down. And as I was thinking about that in anticipation of talking to you, I was thinking, you know what? I might be one of the people, my colleagues that kind of do this horse race stuff about the Fatara scorecard. I might be guilty of driving the idea behind it, people thinking about it wrong. Because what you just said, progress on key IT issues, was the whole point of this originally. It was not the static grades itself. It was the measure of whether agencies are moving forward or moving backward, right? So, I mean, people like me may have been maybe thinking about this all wrong. You know, a- absolutely, Francis. I will say if you look at the EIS category, you know, everyone was focused on the 15 Fs that are there. That was added to the scorecard because there wasn't great progress on that key GSA contract, Right. So it's only been on the scorecard for one year. I guarantee you, if you keep that on the scorecard one year from now, you're going to see significant changes. And I'll equate it to like software licensing. You know, there was a GAO report. No one was focused on the RECs. They put it on the scorecard, very poor grades. And then after about two years, everyone got A's and they dropped it. Yep. So really, that's what it's about. It's about transparency, executive focus on key areas and improvement. My colleague Dave Nitschapier pointed out on yesterday's Daily Scoop podcast, too, right after the hearing, that uh, the, the EIS transition off networks, the measure's different this time than it was last time. The measure on, uh, this, on scorecard version 12 was for 50% transition to EIS, and this time it's 90. So it's a higher standard, and it's understandable that, that agencies didn't do as well this time. Yeah, and I think that as you get closer to some of these key transition dates that are out there, I mean, the key is, have there been tweaks to some of the methodologies on this? Yes, the key is when you do have tweaks to the scorecard like that, you need to make sure they're conveyed to the agencies so so that it's fair. But again, I think the scorecard is really to push folks in the right direction. And my, my message yesterday, Francis, is there are these more pressing IT issues, so cyber needs to change. I think when you look at the working capital funds, yeah, we need progress on that. But I think there should be like an overall budgeting category that focuses not only on working capital funds, but TBM and our budgets. You know, we are good examples like our cyber budgets right now. Everyone's looking at our cyber budgets and they're saying, they're saying are they sufficient? Congress is introducing things like risk-based budgeting for cyber. So we need to get more discipline in our cyber. Working capital funds are key. TBM is key. But we really need a better budgeting process when it comes to IT and cyber. So that was one of my additional recommendations is to add, you know, a broader budgeting category to the scorecard. I think that would be useful. And I think something else that would be useful would be some historical context on the components, the same way we have them on the broader scorecard grades. Because when I look at the broader scorecard grades at this, at this box that shows what happens since scorecard one, 
you see there were some red and there was a lot of orange and a, a lot of yellow and a teeny tiny little bit of green. And as you go across 15, 16, 20, 17, 2018, and so on to come up to today, you've got a lot of greens and you've got a lot of yellow and hardly any. This time there's no orange or red. And so it speaks to the historical progress that agencies are making, even though I mean, we were laughing before we went on the air about how around, what was it, scorecard five or six, people were just complaining like crazy. Oh, you moved the, the goalposts on us. Oh, you're measuring different. People were just all angsty, and yet they responded by, by, the, by nature of the fact that we see pretty much every agency is in green or yellow right now. Yeah, you know, Francis, that's a key point. If you look since scorecard six, so that's May 2018, three and a half years ago, there's really only been one category added to the scorecard, and that's EIS. There have been some tweaks, but for three and a half years, there's only been one additional category here. So you would expect progress, right? Folks are, they're, they're, they're focused on these areas. You would hope. So talked a little bit about, too, learning to take the test. There's a little bit of that, and you got a little staleness to the scorecard, and that's why an update is so critical. All right. One of the things that I think is really exciting about this scorecard is the very last column of measures. CIO's boss is either the head or the deputy of the agency. 16 yeses, three noes, and that's dramatically different than when this process began, isn't it, Dave? Absolutely, and I, I think a key thing when you look at Fatara and the scorecard, one of the big takeaways, and I highlighted this in my statement, is it elevated the role of the CIO? I mean, is it perfect? No, but they're they're involved much more with budgeting. They're involved with the procurement process. I would say they have more of a seat at the executive table, Francis. And it's not perfect at all these agencies, but they're viewed more as a business partner to the mission leaders. And that's really when you step back and folks ask me, what was the car really about? It was to elevate the role of the CIO so that we have better delivery on our technology and better security of our technology. And so those are the big picture things, not these grades. The grades don't really matter. It's like a weak position to deliver on technology and to secure the nation better. That's what it's about. It's resulted in a different kind of CIO too, hasn't it? I mean, the CIOs that we had at the beginning of the Fatara scorecard were very capable and able in what they were required to do at the time, but we have much more of a strategic leader than a tactical leader at that in, in those jobs now, it strikes me. Yeah, abs I think that's absolutely accurate. And I think you really need that strategic leader and you can surround yourself with technical experts. That's really the key there. And frankly, there are some that have both, right? And over the years, we've seen some that have both the strategic focus and the technical background. I know Richard Spires testified yesterday. I think he's a great example of someone who was quite strategic, yep. but you know, he really had the technical background to the lead the right governance processes in both IRS and DHS. So again, but I think your point is we want those strategic leaders. Uh, Richard will join us and your other uh, fellow panelists yesterday, Suzette Kent, will join us next week on the Daily Scoop podcast to talk about this, these issues as well. And the, the other uh, result, I think, of the elevation of the CIO kind of more conceptually, Dave, uh, you mentioned, you know, those people can put folks around them that are capable in the various areas. We've seen an elevation then in the importance and the stature of the chief information security officer at the agency level and the chief technology officer. We now 
have a chief data officer that isn't always involved in the CIO shop, but is a resource to the CIO shop, wherever that person's located in the organization. All of these pieces now seem to me to be more important than they were at the beginning of this process. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the alignment of the chiefs and how those chiefs are coordinated, you know, also to I also add the chief experience officer. We're yeah. starting to see some of those individuals pop up, and that's all very critical. And when you start looking at the delivery of IT and mission modernization and getting off of these legacy systems, that's all about a better customer experience for the citizens. So, yes, the chiefs need great alignment, and hopefully we'll continue in the right direction here. But hopefully future scorecards will keep that broad broad perspective and make sure that we continue to advance down that path. All right. If you're going to sit down for lunch on Monday with a CIO at an agency and they ask you, what should I start doing now to prepare for 14, scorecard 14, to make sure that I can improve my grades and also deliver better for my agency, not just to try to get a grade, what would you tell that person to start doing right away? So I think there's there's three areas that I think are important and I think are big challenges. I think the cyber category, and if you really focus on the EO and the zero trust guidance that's coming out of the White House, that's a good start. Uh, when you look at legacy modernization, legacy modernization is very key because it's hard to have a, a really a good customer experience or to, uh, to actually secure the way we want to uh, associated with the goals in the, in the EO. And then finally, too, I think you need to focus on workforce. It's about the people. We have gaps and critical skills and you need to get the right folks on board. David Pounder, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to the latest Fatara scorecard and the hearing about it that Dave was at in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Monday on the Daily Scoop Podcast, Gerard Bedoric, the soon-to-be former CFO at GSA, that show debuts Monday afternoon. Until then, have a great weekend. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.